Hello there. I'm Christopher Lee, and welcome to SITREP, the programme from BFBS that tells you everything you need to know and should know about defence and global affairs. Well, in the next 60 minutes, a global roundup of the world hotspots, the ones we should know about. Plus, the day that war broke out, my wife said to me, now, who said it? Which war? And what about all the others we went to and some we didn't? Your guide to the day that war broke out for 100 years. And, as a bonus, where is the next war? But let's have a look at the world before we start. Let's start with Afghanistan, because that's our war today. The deputy head of intelligence has been murdered, and another British soldier also killed yesterday. And the day um, is not yet over, John Dickey. No, it's a sad, sad tale. I mean, uh, the British troops have done valiant work there in order to have an election. The election has really been a bit of a farce. People... Seeing the the polling stations were open, but not choosing to go there. Inevitable, um, uh, was that Julian Thompson? Well, I think it was <coughs> because of the threat that the Taliban can, can exercise on people who go and vote or even walk towards the polling station, because we unfortunately do not control every single square inch of that territory. What did we make, uh, Martin McCauley, the, the idea that um, that some people, cynically, and you have to be careful because, I mean, guys are fighting for and giving their lives. And there's a whole bunch of art people in armchairs back in London say, oh, well, you know, there's no strategy other than catch-up. And the answer lies in Pakistan, not in Afghanistan. But there's a certain amount of truth in that last point. It does. And if you look at Helmand and you look at Waziristan, uh, the two are linked. And you can't solve Afghanistan without solving Pakistan. And you can't solve Pakistan without the Pakistani army working with you very, very closely. And the moment will come perhaps later on this year, when, for instance, Britain will have to decide uh, whether it can continue or whether it should really hand it over to the Pakistanis and the Americans. Julian Thompson, as a, um, you know, he loosely described, no, definitely describes a Royal Marine Major General who's actually done it for real. What do you make of the thing that everybody's been discussing all week, uh, what uh, General McChrystal is saying about Afghanistan? Is it really close but no cigar? I think so. I think what, what he's saying is that there really hasn't been a real proper look at the strategy. And now he's looked at it and, and, and said, we've got to change it. And I, and I think he's right. As I've said, I think, on this programme before, we got into Afghanistan without really knowing what we were trying to do. And that's no slur on the people who were trying to perform there. They were sent there for a mission that didn't exist. Uh, and then found themselves fighting a really hard, tough war, and it's been playing catch-up ever since, as I see it. Um, John Dickey, um, as the, you covered things like this for years as the Daily Mail's diplomatic editor in Whitehall in Washington. What do you make of it now? Where are we diplomatically and politically? I think we're at a crossroads. We have to decide what we're really aiming to do and within what sort of time scale. I know people say we're in for the long haul, but I think the time will come when we have to draw a line and say, for example, by 2012, we hand over to a government in Kabul, and it's up to them to exert central control throughout the whole country. And if they can't do that, there's very little more we can do. Um, Dr. Martin McCauley, um, looking at it from the academic's point of view, um, what do you see in Pakistan? Why do you think that Pakistan is the key to the whole thing? Uh, because in Afghanistan, anybody to escape, the Taliban, for instance, any other group, to escape from the coalition forces only have to cross the border. And it's a very, very long border. 
And to, lo- to a large extent, Pakistan, the, the government of Islamabad, doesn't control uh, the federal uh, territories from the northwest down to Waziristan. So uh, the Pakistani government and military have to go into areas where they normally have not been before, and they have to fight there over a tremendously wide terrain. And unless they do that, uh, then you can't really defeat the Taliban militarily in Afghanistan. And the Russians now are getting very, very concerned because if the coalition forces uh, start uh, withdrawing, the Russians will have to intervene because they know that if uh, uh, the coalition forces cede Pakistan, cede Afghanistan, then they will have to uh, intervene to prevent the penetration of radical Islam into Central Asia, which will then penetrate Russia. Okay, let's have let's have a look at if we can just whip through some of the global areas, uh, John. Um, I'm thinking of Korea. Um, if you think Korea, Japan, China, there's an enormous connection at the moment, and especially as the Koreans are sort of making, not noises for, oh, perhaps we will talk to the, uh, South Korea now, this is the North Koreans I'm talking about. Do we believe them? Well, it's interesting, you know, the, uh, the Asians have taken a leaf out of the Europeans' book that there's nothing better for diplomacy than a good funeral, and because of uh, Kim Jae-un's funeral, in uh, South the Korea. former president, former of South president who did so much for democracy, who did his best to build bridges, along came a delegation from Pyongyang, North Korea, and they were given uh, time to discuss the situation uh, with the South Koreans. But I think the most important part of uh, the past few days in that area has been China's <coughs> warning to Burma. About 10,000 refugees have come over, ethnic Chinese, from Burma into uh, South Yunnan province. And the Chinese have made a rare stare warning to the Burmese to stabilize that part of the world. And it's very interesting that the, the Chinese have taken that strong line. Yes, the, the, the Chinese who are actually going into China are ethnic Chinese, ethnic Chinese minorities in Myanmar, in Burma. And it's extremely disappointing for Beijing because uh, they have large projects uh, for the building of oil and gas pipelines and roads up through Burma into Yunnan and the rest of China. And uh, they thought they had very good relations with uh, Rangoon, with with the military junta. And now it appears that the junta has decided that these minorities, these ethnic minorities, uh, who include Chinese and various other groups, that they are obviously a security threat near the frontier with China. And they seem to want to uh, remove them all. Julian Thompson, it's fascinating talking about, say, Korea or North Korea, but the Korea as it was at once was. And we're going to be talking about that, how the Korean War started later on. But in hearing um, uh, John Dickey talking about the Chinese and Burma, we're in there as well, um, there's hardly a place in that region, including Vietnam, where the British at one time or other haven't been militarily. So when we talk about things now, we have to think someone in the MOD, hopefully, has got the... He's got a map. He's got a map. Of what, and what is absolutely fascinating is the fact that the Chinese are regarding Burma as, as a way of getting oil out and goods in, because, of course, that was the, the old Burma road that was built which by the Americans... Use, which before, they're going to use to develop. Yeah, which was built before the Second World War in order to supply the Chinese, who are, of course, allies with the Americans. And, and it's really sort of watching it all happen again. Uh, this particular struggle. And, of course, the Chinese in Burma, like, for example, the Indians, 
were very successful in, in the business world before the Second World War and after the Second World War, and it made them unpopular with the Burmese because they were seen as uh, successful, rich uh, entrepreneurs <coughs> and, and milking the local population, which Except they were. Except the Indians are now back in Burma. I'm told they're supplying tanks and planes, and when I took this up with an... A distinguished Indian uh, diplomat, he said, oh, no, we're building bridges and roads as well. But I mean, it's amazing how the junta, which is so much despised throughout the rest of the world, uh, is having good business relations with China, with India, yeah, and uh, it's a member of ASEAN. It's not suspended from that. Absolutely, yeah. I tell you what, I want to leap round there. I want to go to the Middle East because I mean, so much is happening in the Middle East we ought to know about. Um, but uh, something may not, people may not take notice of Martin McCauley. Turkey... NATO, uh, very much a NATO member, wants to be a member of the European Union. Everybody has an opinion on Turkey. They're making friends with Armenia. Explain why this is important. It's extremely important because you go back to the Armenian massacres in the Ottoman Empire well, in, no, in 1916, 1916 yeah. when the Armenian minority were seen as the fifth column and they more or less annihilated. Now, Turkey... How many of them do you know? Some people talk up to two million. Right. These are all guesses. By the Turks. By the Turks. Now, Turkey has steadfastly refused to acknowledge this. They say it's a lie. And if you mention it, the Turks then blacklist you. And what Turkey did in 1922, became a republic, he more or less cut herself off from Armenia, from the Middle East, and looked towards Europe. And now, for the first time since 1922, the Turkish government, which has Islamic uh, tinges, uh, it's going back to what the Ottoman Empire was before, and they're looking to the Middle East, they're looking to Armenia because it's very good trade and so on. They've linked with Israel, and they're trying to broker agreements with Syria, between Syria and uh, Israel, and so on. All right, um, not far away, uh, Julian, Iran. I was fascinated with the idea that, um, that the Iranians are suggesting maybe they will talk about their nuclear systems or nuclear program at the moment. Presumably this has got a little bit to do with the fact that the United Nations is about to put some new sanctions on them. Yes, this is bound to have had, a, had an effect. But <clears throat> I think that, that Iran, as well as seeing themselves as a nuclear power, they hope, in order to deal with, in quotation marks, Israel, also is looking the other way. I think they're very worried about Pakistan as a nuclear power. And if the, if the Pakistan nuclear arsenal gets into the wrong hands, it will worry them even more. Why should it run, worry the uh, Iranians? Because... They don't necessarily agree with Pakistan over uh, religious matters. They don't necessarily agree with Pakistan over the, the treatment of Afghanistan. And it might, might be that they could clash. Right. It's also interesting that, you know, President Obama's uh, deadline for extending his hand and making sure that they start some dialogue will expire later this month. And at the same time, there are meetings of the uh, Europeans to consider tightening sanctions. But... Interesting enough, Mohammed El-Baradai, who was until very recently the head of the mm. Atomic Energy uh, Unit, says that there's too much hype about the um, Iranian enrichment program. They're still far away from being able to produce this bomb. What are you laughing at, Martin? Yes, well, I would expect him to say that, uh, because if you look at Ahmadinejad putting in a new government, three women in the cabinet... That was yesterday. Yesterday, mm. uh, a lot of opposition. Therefore, there's a lot of domestic uh, trouble for Ahmadinejad. At this moment, he doesn't want any external problem, so therefore, almost certainly, he will, he will make nice noises yeah. about nuclear weapons. Martin, what, what's, what's this guy, um, his defence minister that he, he, he brought up <laughs> yesterday, uh, Ahmad Vahidi? He, um, I mean, he was the man that's wanted by Argent, 
the Argentines, yes. But supposedly for mastermind the attack on that Jewish centre in, in Buenos Aires. In yes. Buenos Aires. Yes, yes. So, so, you know, what's the deal there? Because I, I can't see why anybody should get upset about that because wasn't he Deputy Defence Minister anyway? Yes, but um, the Israelis also link him to that and so on. And They don't forgive, do they? They don't forgive. And uh, if you let him get away with that, they would then say, right, he did that in Buenos Aires. What's he going to do again? He's got form and so on. So therefore, put a lot of, if you like, moral pressure on him so that he behaves himself somewhere else. John, Africa, can we, is there anything we should be looking at in Africa at the moment? Well, Zimbabwe's still in a mess. They're burning the uh, white farms. I mean, Mike Campbell, a great guy of 78 years, and his son-in-law, Ben Freeth, both of the farms burned. Jacob Zuma, the South African president, made a visit, but he only said, you know, you must get together. Whereas Nothing's changed. Nothing changed. I mean, the so-called Pershing Agreement has been undermined by Mugabe himself. He <coughs> initialed it, and then when he looked at the whole treaty, he tore 11 pages out of it. Hmm. No, it's, it's a dreadful mess. Like a BBC he, he can stay in power forever, Well, he's not going to live forever. Well, he's uh, been under medical treatment recently, and he wasn't at the funeral of Joe Masika, one of his uh, great hmm. uh, uh, terrorist uh, commanders, and if he wasn't there, he must have been ill. Because he was in the bush with him, wasn't he? Yes. Yeah. Zimbabwe has a lot of raw materials, and uh, basically... The elites can stay in power forever. I remember asking you ages ago, Gillian uh, Thompson, because you know that region quite well, don't you? I mean, you, you yeah, sort yeah, of get it. Um, it also struck me that some of the newspapers say, ah, oh, well, if it really gets bad, we might have to send in British forces to uh, pull out people. We've never done it, and we're never going to do it, are we? I don't think we'll ever do it. I don't think no we'll need to. I don't think there's any need to. No, yeah. I can't see us ever doing it. Yeah. I don't know. Um, the SES has made... Three visits, to my knowledge, to check on the wardens and their arrangements, and it could happen that you had to have one route going out to Zambia and the other route going out to Mozambique. Well, at least they've got a map in Hereford anyway. That's all right. Um, I want to talk about your lot, uh, Martin. Um, the well, the the, the Russians. Russia. Yes. The the, the Russians. Um, quite a lot going on there with Putin, isn't there? Yes, well, Putin's the strong man. In fact, Hillary Clinton uh, has realised that it's a waste of time talking to Dmitry Medvedev. He's like a puppet, and therefore she knows that you talk to Putin. So Putin is a big guy, uh, no mistake about it. And he's been forcing through a reform of the military, sacking tens of thousands of officers, uh, and uh, he wants to modernise the army And by 10, 15 years. But the trouble is he hasn't got very much money. That's one of the reasons for downgrading down, uh, the military. He's got all this oil. You can't get much for oil. No, it, moment, it, can apparently you? it costs uh, $64 a barrel to produce. And, and it's trading at 40 No, well, it was 70 and then gone down and so mm. on. So, therefore, Russia is just keeping its head above water. And it's not or above really, oil. Yes, it's not really. And something about uh, 40 50% of the uh, budget comes from oil revenue. Right. And, of course, it's gone right down. And GDP this year is supposed to go down 10 12%. Yeah. So, therefore... Uh, he's, he's in a fix. He hasn't got money. Uh, and uh, the elites around him will fight among themselves. And uh, the word is uh, everybody's getting their money out to, out to London. Uh-huh. London, um, Julian Thompson. London, MOD. Go into the MOD now. Everybody's sort of looking uneasily at each other because there's an internecine war, isn't there? Because we're going to have a defence review next year, or we think we are. Well, we, we're told we are. Do you think um, we will? I think we will. Whoever gets in, I think we will. 
uh, and I think it's going to be very interesting because the big but the shouting, Treasury will demand it, not the MOD. Yes, I mean the Treasury should be told to get lost, in my opinion, by by the government. They won't because there isn't enough money being spent on defence, and therefore hard choices are going to have to be made. And these choices may be very hard indeed. And I think it's worth reminding uh, people who say, "Well, let's." Uh, um, give the troops the equipment they need in Afghanistan, which we should do, but also we, we live in an island and we import 98% of our uh, everything by sea. And the bottom line is if we don't maintain a strong navy, we could be in trouble in the future. RAF's not saying much, is it? The RAF is keeping quiet. Why? Because the RAF have been, in the person of the chief of the air staff, been going around saying the RAF should control every, everything that flies, which has made him pretty unpopular. Including rumours. Including rumours, which have made him pretty unpopular with both sides. So at the moment they keep him, because they've got a new boss anyway. Yeah. So he's probably Everyone's finding, got a new boss. Everyone's got a new boss. At the moment, I think they're just fi- uh, finding their way around. Yes, what do you rate, how do you rate the new CGS? I mean, he's, he's quite, an, I don't mean an intellectual in the, in the pejorative sense, but he's a thinker. I think he's a thinker, and I think he will follow... Uh, in his predecessor's footsteps, perhaps not quite in the same way, in not being a, a, a pushover. Yeah. Um, Martin, I, mean, I want to talk about, just very briefly, about <laughs> Latin America. We never touched on Latin America. There's nobody's interest in Latin America since 1982. Um, but um, Brazil, oil, that's quite a powerful projection that they will have offshore oil. Yes, they're going to have offshore. They've, they've discovered off the southeast coast of, uh, of uh, Brazil in deep waters. Uh, huge amounts of uh, potentially huge amounts of oil and gas. It depends on the oil and gas price, uh, but if they go up, then they'll be able to exploit those. And Petrobras, which is the, the Brazilian state enterprise, uh, will in fact exploit it. They don't want foreign companies coming in to exploit it, so that may slow it down. Uh, but Brazil at present exports uh, a lot of energy, exports a lot of food and so on. It has fantastic amount of uh, arable land which is un- unused, uncultivated, so therefore it's, it's one of the great countries of the future. Right. The other interesting talk, of course, is that your, your hero, uh, Castro, has appeared on television yes. looking mm-hmm. very well. He looks all right, doesn't that yes. boy? Yes. 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 Uh, all these good, good wish greetings that he, you he, sent have, have cheered him up, no? Ah, yes, he's, but he's, he's not brilliant. in power. It's his brother, Raul. <laughs> he's the hard man. He's the man in power. Yes. And he's a pragmatist. So therefore, and uh, I hadn't quite realised that 80% of uh, Cuba's food uh, Havana's food is planted and grown inside the city of Havana. Uh, of Havana. They, they and down in and down in Sabawaka. Yeah, they do everything, and in fact, that's very enterprising. The the yeah. Cubans, in fact, it's self help. Yeah, go to St James's Park where they have that wonderful allotment. That's where they got the idea from. I promise <laughs> you, Fast Eddie's mum, who sends greetings to to to, the, uh, to Fidel. Fidel once a month, once mm. a month without fail, mm. says he is in much better nick than she ever seen him for about twenty years. Uh, talking about oil, as we were. Brazil, uh, and we talked about China. Uh, China's buying into the American, no, sorry, the Canadian yes. um, oil business, the, the sands. Yeah, Petro China. They're everywhere, the Chinese. They've bought the world, haven't they? It's well, they're all over in Africa. I mean, they, they've got this 900 mile long pipeline from Malakal in southern Sudan to Port Sudan. Um, they're anxious to get as much oil as they can, otherwise, their economy will be, will be scuppered. The, the, the great question is, the economic question is, are these uh, projects viable? Uh, are they, in fact, too expensive? Uh, and that's only in the future. And only the future will tell us. Right. Last question on our global review, um, Julian. I read um, that the Commonwealth, um, the Commonwealth is going to 
suspend or has suspended, is that right, John? Has, has suspended, already suspended Fiji after it refused uh, to call elections by next year. Now, I want to know what happens to all the Fijians in the British Army because, I mean, I mean, the, the, uh, the Black, uh, Black Watch, for example, as far as I remember, used to be full of Fijians. I, I think they'll remain. I, mean, they'll, I expect what will happen is the same as when Southern Rhodesia went independent in 64. People get marching until, and asked, where is your loyalty? <coughs> and I'm sure they will say that our loyalty is to the British Army, in which case they'll remain. Like Fiji is a special case because if you had democratic elections, the Indians would win it. Well, that was exactly. the reason for the previous coup, That's and the exactly previous right. abstention from the Commonwealth. But uh, the Indians run the business community there. It's not just the Constitution. They're, they're controlling the press. They're controlling the hours of businesses opening. So automatically the uh, CMAG, the uh, Commonwealth Ministerial Action Group, said they must be suspended, and that's, mm. that's gone it through. It is actually a relic of, of, of empire in that when we went to Fiji all those years ago, we passed a law which said that no one could own land other than Fijians, which was seen at the time as being a very um, forward-looking idea. To, well, Indian labour was brought in. Can exactly. I tell you two things? The most important thing is that uh, Fiji, uh, Frank um, Vini Maramama, uh, the, um, the president, is, of course, a Commodore Fiji Navy. So the Navy's running it, so it doesn't actually matter what happens, uh, they'll take their time. The second thing is, we've been right round the world, nuclear powers, wars that we're in, wars we've not quite got into. The most interesting thing is what's going on in a colonial power like Fiji. Ain't it just... Yes. yes. Fiji has always been right the way, so 376 years has been, a, 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 has been something which is in the Foreign Office what do we do about Fiji? Mm. Yes, I've got connections because my uncle uh, was Fijian? chief, no, chief mm. medical officer in the 1940s mm. in Fiji, and he told a few stories. What's that got to do with it? <laughs> it's just relevant. In the 1940s. Yeah, 1940s. Q. 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 1940s. We're into war. Um, got two quotes for you. Which stand-up's catchphrase was? I'm going to do the voice. The day that war broke out, my wife said to me, "And what about this?" Um, a very strong sense of calm came over me after the intense passions and excitements of the last few days. I felt a serenity of mind, was conscious of a kind of uplifted detachment from human and personal affairs. The glory of old England, peace-loving and ill-prepared as she was, but instant and fearless as the call of honour, thrilled my being and seemed to lift our fate those spheres far removed from earthly facts and physical sensation. Now, I'll tell you, um, that last uh, quote, if you, if you know who it is, why don't you sort of email us at sitrep, um, uh, bfps.com forward slash sitrep, email us and tell us who you think it is. But it sounds as if it ought to be in um, Julian Thompson's book, A Call to Arms. Is it in there? I don't think it is, actually. No, it, it, well, it should be. It should It'll be. be in the next edition, I it tell will. you. Right, the other catchphrase, the day the war broke out, my wife said to me, um, that was a marvellous melodramatic actor who became a comedian, Rob Wilton, uh, one of the biggest names of 30s and 40s. If you think you know about stand-ups, you really ought to know about this thing. And he used to say, um, the day the war broke out, my missus said to me, it's up to you. You've got to stop it. I said, stop what? She said, the war. Now, this man... Uh, inspired, I will promise you, Dad's Army. Absolutely true. I spoke to the writers. And they said, yep, listen to him. Everything, everybody wanted to know the day the war broke out. What we're going to do in the next uh, 36 minutes, 
we're going to take you right through a hundred years of why the day why why war broke out. We're going to start with World War One, the day the war broke out. Our theme for the second half of Sitrep. Now everyone's talking about today about World War Two, and we shall. But let's ask the simplest of questions. Decades before the great powers in uh, Julian Thompson um, uh, went to war in 1914, war was brewing, wasn't it? Yes, it, it was. It was, a, a, if you like, a sort of time bomb, in the sense because of various um, uh, treaties that had been made between, for example, France and, and Russia that they would go to war if Germany invaded them, uh, and Austria-Hungary and 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 Germany uh, made a pact with each other. And if you like, there was a sort of interlocking grouping which someone only had to sort of wriggle the edge and the whole lot, uh, like a snake, set off. That, I think, is oversimplistic in a way, in a, in a sense that nowadays, I think, with modern communications, it would have been stopped, that war, I believe. Yeah. But it sort of had an inevitability about it because of the interlocking agreements. Tell me exactly how you see... If you had a, a, had a, had a first-year student, Martin, one of your first-year students, what would you say the war started because of Colin? It, it uh, started in 1914 because of the murder of Franz uh, Ferdinand. By Gavrilo Princi. By uh, Gavrilo Princi, a Serb, and so on. If you like, the Balkans has been the bane of European wars. Uh, the Balkans, 1912-1914, Bulgarian war, Bulgaria and Serbia and uh, Turkey. But what happened then? I mean, he was assassinated. Do we know why he was assassinated, John? Because the Serbs felt they'd been badly treated by the Austro-Hungarians and therefore they wanted to demonstrate their displeasure and Gavril Princip in Belgrade uh, waited until the passing of Archduke uh, Ferdinand Franz Josef. And, uh, and put a bullet in him. Hmm. And his um, nephew got a an extra income subsequently by being curator of the museum in Belgrade. Yes. Um, Martin, so we have the assassination. Um, the um, people think, well, you know, this is something to do with the uh, Serbs, yes? Is that right? Yeah, yes, but the war... So was, what happens? The war was, in fact, caused by Vienna, by Austria. Mm. Uh, Austria put demands on uh, Serbia mm. and... Uh, the, Russia defended Serbia. Yes, and I think there were nine demands, and the Serbs accepted eight of them. The ninth one was that the Austrian police and military should come in to find the culprits. Find the culprits. And you couldn't have that because mm. then you'd lose your... But they put it in deliberately, Martin, didn't they, in the hope that, that yeah. they would be able to go to war with them. Yeah, They wanted war, so yeah. Austria went to war, which was a catastrophic misjudgment because the austrian Hungarian army was a joke. Uh, because if you go to Salzburg... Uh, you'll find that the declaration of war is in about 20 languages. The okay. Germans, the Germans refer to, to the Austrian war. army as like being shackled yeah. to a corpse. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, Julian, I mean, uh, Germany invaded neutral Belgium. Correct. That was really the cause of we got into the war, but we knew we were probably going to have to anyway. We had some uh, uh, staff talks with the French long before the war, which where we decided where we would go if Germany invaded. But we had not agreed officially... And in fact, when it looked as if we were going to war, the French thought, my God, the Brits are not going to come in. And what actually propelled us in was the Germans invading Belgium because we had an agreement that if Belgian neutrality was, was, was uh, uh, stamped upon, we'd go to the aid, aid of Belgium. 
because yes. we could not afford and to see Belgium in the in the in someone else's hands. And the Germans were going through Belgium to get at France, to get at mm. Paris. Mm. They could As have they gone, always tried to. Yes, and the Ardennes and so on. But they could have gone through uh, the German uh, French frontier in the south. Mm. They could have gone through Alsace, which at that time was in Germany. Mm. And they could have gone, and, and uh, Lutring and, and Lorraine was in Germany, and they could have come in through there without going through Belgium. But somebody, it was the von Schlieffen plan, and von Schlieffen said... Who's yeah, von von Schlieffen? He was the Prussian military mm. genius, who in fact worked, these, I think, in the 1850s, 1870, years bit before. later. He was dead before the war started. Yeah, he was a bit so much great man. And he worked all mm. that out and said, right, you must keep to that. And the Prussians being Prussians, mm. think, right, we must keep to that. They didn't need to go through Belgium. No, but they did. In fact, they almost, they contemplated going through Holland as well, actually, um, but they quick, decided not to. Quick thought for you, because I want to go on to the World War II, as everybody does. Um, 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 John Dickey. Um, I always had the hypothesis that the, that the British really weren't ready for the First World War because they were spending all their time, the cabinet was, thinking about what was going on in Ireland. That was a, a great um, distraction from their preparations. On the other hand, there was a great deal of naval rearmament going on so yeah. that they realised that an island, like uh, as Julian has said, uh, requires a very strong navy, and that was one thing they gave priority to. Okay. In fact, the British Navy uh, mobilised before mm. we declared war on Germany. Mm. Churchill authorised it, and it went to its war stations in the, in, the, in the north of Scotland, Scapa flew. in Scapa, six days before uh, we declare war on Germany. Right. Mm. Should we go to World War II? Um, I mean, today is the anniversary of, uh, as far as the British are concerned, but the war itself, uh, Julian, started on the 1st of uh, September. September. With the invasion of Poland. Yes. Um, by, 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 by the Germans. Beginning beginning with a, bomb, uh, a bombardment, shore bombardment from... Be beginning with a bombardment, and beginning actually before that... With a with, with a, a staged attack on a on a radio station just inside Germany, at a place called Gleiwitz, where um, German prisoners were dressed up in Polish uniforms, and they attacked this station, were all killed, and, and this was one of the sort of lead-ups to, to to this invasion by Hitler of Poland. Okay, now Patrick Eid has been looking at this, and he reports for us, Sitrep, on why Britain and France, twenty years after the war to end all wars were once again facing up to the threat of war with Germany. As Germany emerged from the terrible ravages of the First World War and roaring recession of the 1920s, Adolf Hitler became Chancellor in 1933 and set about rearming the country and seeking a new world order. Vera Wunsch, then as a young girl living in Berlin, said it all seemed plausible. And in those hard times... I think uh, it was a very hopeless time for most people. And Hitler promised Autobahn and he promised labor and he promised that we Germans uh, could maybe get back uh, uh, Elsa-Slothring, other countries we, from the Versailles Treaty. And all this sounded very good. Hitler in his first years, he must have a lot of personality or say charisma because when he spoke uh, everybody was uh, enthusiastic about him. To others in Europe though the alarm bells were ringing and 20 years after the war to end all wars Britain and France were once again facing up to the threat of conflict with Germany. James Taylor at the Imperial War Museum. The policy of appeasement was hugely supported by 
the British public. Adolf Hitler started to encroach, first of all, um, into the Rhineland in 1936. Then he annexed Austria in 1938, claiming that really these were kind of German peoples. Then we have, I suppose, the Munich crisis over Czechoslovakia, which is the low point of appeasement. And then, of course, it's completely shattered when uh, he invades Poland on the 1st of September 1939. In Downing Street, British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain now had no room for manoeuvre after a final ultimatum had been ignored by Hitler, and he went to the nation at 11 o'clock that Sunday morning on the 3rd of September 1939. This morning, the British ambassador in Berlin handed the German government a final note stating that unless we heard from them by 11 o'clock that they were prepared at once to withdraw their troops from Poland, a state of war would exist between us. I have to tell you now that no such undertaking has been received and that consequently this country is at war with Germany. 50 million lives were lost in the Second World War, including almost 400,000 British service and civilian deaths. Historian James Taylor says that despite his honourable intentions, Chamberlain had no alternative 70 years ago. Chamberlain thought that you could fight uh, or deal with Hitler under the Queensbury rules, whereas you most certainly couldn't, that that Hitler was a man of honour and who would keep his word. And, of course, um, he proved after Munich that that most certainly wasn't the case. That was James Taylor from the Imperial War Museum and that report um, by Patrick Ede. That is an exhibition at the Imperial War Museum in London. On it's, I think it's called Outbreak 1939, and that goes on for the rest of the year until certainly the end of December. Um, John Dickey, um, without revealing any secrets, um, you were in church when Chamberlain uh, spoke at, uh, what was it, 11.15, 15 minutes after the, if we don't get a reply by 11 o'clock. Mm-hmm. Um, I seem to remember you telling me that the parson announced it. Now, tell me why the parson announced it and not Neville Chamberlain, as far as you were concerned. Well, uh, the minister uh, carried on his service, as is his wont, and I'm surprised that uh, the prime minister of the day didn't wait until one o'clock when people were back from church before making an announcement which everybody knew was coming because uh, immediately the invasion of Poland began on the Friday, there was no way of stopping them. And so hang on, the, the invasion of, of Poland happened on, 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 the, on the first. Uh, fr- wait- which was Friday. Yeah, we waited two days before we got into war. Well, Why? I think this was a bit of um, spin doctoring by Neville Chamberlain to make it seem to the general public that there wasn't a stone he left unturned. He gave him an ultimatum, which he knew would be rejected, but it, it had to go its course for 48 hours. Therefore, uh, I was in church on that morning of the Sunday, uh, and then uh, just before pronouncing the benediction, uh, the minister You said, were pronouncing the benediction? No, the minister, oh, the minister sorry, sorry. was pronouncing the benediction. He said, I have to tell you that we are at war. And therefore we all trooped out very uh, solemn-faced and heard the announcement repeated later on the BBC at six o'clock. I suppose being Presbyterian, you wondered which war you were at. (laughs) (laughs) Martin, you had a... I was going to say that uh, Chamberlain uh, had uh, signed a treaty with Poland a few days before, I think it was the 26th of of, of August, and he was trying to get out of that because that treaty... Why did he sign it? I think he misjudged the situation. He thought that he got a deal over Danzig because it was over the free city of Danzig, which he was pressuring. Which is the way into Poland, mm. isn't it? Yes, but the, the Polish corridor between Danzig and East Prussia was Poland's access to What do we call Danzig now? 
Gdansk. It's now Gdansk. Where Solidarity began. Yes. Uh, And he tried to get out of that treaty. Uh, He misjudged Hitler uh, because he thought he'd done a deal with him. And uh, uh, it was some of his ministers who came to see him on the second, on the evening of the second. He was having lunch with the Foreign Secretary Halifax, dinner with the the Foreign Secretary. And they came and they said, we're staying here until you uh, acknowledge this treaty and declare war. Right, so he was forced. Julian... Were we prepared militarily to go to war? No, we certainly weren't. Uh, the Navy probably was, the Air Force probably was. Until uh, 19 till February 1939, we had not decided that we'd commit an army to the continent. Until February 1939, the British Army's job was home defence. It was trained for home defence and imperial policing. And in February 1939, the decision was made that we would deploy rather as we had in the First World War, uh, troops to the continent of Europe. And, and therefore, expeditionary our, force. Exactly. But our army was not trained to fight Why? a continental war because until then he'd resisted the idea of ever fighting on the continent of Europe again. But this is the military resisting the idea. Does this mean that the politicians... The military didn't argue all that hard with the idea that the, that the, the army should train for imperial policing and home defence. I mean, they were told to do what they were told by the politicians, and the politicians eventually agreed that, under French pressure, that we would deploy to the continent in the event of war with Germany. And we initially deployed only four divisions, not as well trained as the divisions that had deployed in 1914. And, of course, we had a huge amount of catch-up, because if you decide that you're going to fight... Home defence, what you need, anti-aircraft guns and, and your weaponry is going to be totally different. If you suddenly decide you're going to fight an armoured enemy on the continent, you need tanks, you need to train people to fight a mobile war. So you're starting from a, a position of disadvantage. And if you're disadvantaged, you probably use your infantry and put them in tanks when you need your infantry on the ground anyway. Well, you haven't got enough tanks. We didn't have an armoured <laughs> division. It arrived in France just at the end of the, of the 1940 campaign. And, and was committed piecemeal. We didn't have an armoured division. And, uh, and Chamberlain, in giving uh, these uh, uh, hopes to the, the Poles, did them with France, and he expected the French army mm. to mobilise by the 17th of September and then attack the Germans along the Rhine and Moselle and force them out of Poland. So therefore there's no intention no. of actually transmitting or, or and in sending fact, actually, British had the troops. French done so, it's very interesting, had the French seriously done it, the Germans could have been in bad trouble because they didn't actually have many people holding what was the sort of embryo Siegfried line and had the French attacked, the French had more better tanks than the Germans did. This is a myth that the, the German armour was better. But the French had, had better armour. That was the weakness of the French and that was something that Churchill yeah. uh, saw as a great disadvantage of getting involved with the French generals, that they were men who were not prepared to stand and deliver. Sure, and also their command and control system was completely hopeless. Mm. John, just mm. before we go to Korea... Huh, <laughs> um, just before we go to oh, Korea... Oh, you to Korea. Um, <laughs> as a... Presumably, as a, as a very young student at the time... Schoolboy. Schoolboy at the time. Mm. Um, did you think, well, this is going to go on, or did anybody say it's going to go on one day, no. you're going to have to sign up and, no, and join was, the Scottish Horse, as I, you did? I was, I was rather sad. that then I, I was in the junior training corps, and I thought, God, this war's going to be over before I get a chance. I mean, you know, things have moved so You wanted fast. to go? I wanted to. There was this strange feeling of patriotism throughout the country in those days, and one felt, gosh, I'm, I'm idling here. I wish I were finished my school. I'd get into the army, and I felt it's all going to be finished. Uh, fortunately, Within it was. six months? Yes, there was a feeling that, you know, this is not a war that's going to last. In fact, it took us, you know, four and a half years for us to mount the overlord invasion of Normandy. Right. 
Um, reluctantly, because everybody else is doing it, and you've, you've been listening to it uh, all afternoon, I think, on uh, Richard Hutton's show um, from uh, the Royal Hospital, Chelsea. Now, we're going, though, to Korea. Martin, how did we get into, after World War II, how did we get into a war in Korea in 1950? Simply because of the United Nations. Uh, Kim Il-sung, who was a communist leader of North Korea, uh, told Stalin that the North Koreans could uh, occupy, militarily take over the South. And uh, he, uh, on several occasions, he put forward this, and Stalin always held him back. In 1950, he said, right, OK, go ahead. And he also told the Chinese to get involved as well. The Chinese, Mao Zedong, didn't want to get involved in a war with, with the United States. And the reason why Britain got involved was because he'd went to the United Nations and he'd went to the Security Council and the motion and declared uh, aggression. And uh, the reason why it went through was because the Soviet Union had, in fact, boycotted, was boycotting the security council at that time, and therefore it went through, because had it had the Soviet Union been there, presumably they would have vetoed it. Yes, I mean, the United Nations, um, John, was a very young body at that stage, wasn't it? Indeed, they didn't have a, a sort of military organisation behind it. it. It just sent out... Uh, was it uh, five years old? Yes, it, it had been established just after the war in 1945, and mm. therefore um, it didn't have the, the, the military coordination in place, but it was amazing how quickly... It, but uh, it was even... That it was the first and, and probably the most successful ever United mm. Nations operation because, in fact, because it was dominated mm. by the Americans eventually. Yeah. I mean, mm. and it was a really an American mm. operation flying mm. the UN flags, who had all the American mm. logistics, all the American command and mm. control, all the, the bits and pieces mm. were provided by them. Mm. And huge numbers of other people provided uh, uh, contingents. The yeah, Turks, 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 but also had the, the Indians, uh, the French, General ourselves. MacArthur is the great yeah. leader in those days. Indeed, and of course his great stroke was, was at Incheon when yes. he did an amphibious landing which cut off yeah. the North Koreans who were besieging the United Nations forces in the, in the southern part of Korea. He said, it's like pulling the plug out mm. from the wall, the light will go off. But, I mean, and it did. Yeah, I mean, yeah. MacArthur got kicked out in there, didn't he, by his yeah. own president, because, I mean... He, well, he not because of Incheon, because he went, on, he went on to the, the, the border, mm. up to the Chinese border, and got a bloody nose, and then was talking about using nuclear weapons, which Truman didn't like. Had he done so, the Chinese would have backed down. Yeah. But it's yeah. extraordinary that now in 2009 it's still not a peace there. It's an armistice there. And it's still the 38th to, power. If you go to Panmunjom, you see the most heavily fortified border in the world. Mm. I mean, watchtowers on both sides. Right. Listen, the, uh, Julian, Korea uh, finished 1953. 1953, yeah. Right. Um, six years later, although it had all started much earlier, six years later people are thinking about the Americans especially getting into the Vietnam War. And to some extent, it's the American perception of sending, let's say, advisers. It's the American perception of what would have been happening in Korea that they felt that the whole communist thing was getting into... Well, what, what their, their theory was, they had a thing called the domino theory, was that if, if, if Vietnam went... Uh, uh, collapse, it, it would topple over into, into Thailand and then run all the way down the Malay Peninsula, end up in Singapore and then hop across into in, Indonesia rather like a lot of dominoes being flopped over. Uh, I think that was total nonsense, but that was their, their idea. <clears throat> what had happened in, in Vietnam, of course, was that it had been a French colony and the French had gone back in there after the Second World War and fought a very bitter war 
against a, a freedom organization, the Viet Minh, uh, led by Ho Chi Minh. And in fact, the, the, French, had, Front. the French had more mm -hmm. people killed in a shorter time mm -hmm. in Vietnam than the Americans did, it's worth remembering. And eventually, after a huge defeat at Dien Bien Phu, a siege in 1954, a treaty was signed, the French got out, uh, Vietnam was, was uh, uh, divided, split into two, North Vietnam, communist, South this Vietnam... This is the 17th parallel. The 17th parallel, not communist. Uh, and then the Americans eventually started getting sucked into this war by recognising that if they didn't support the South Vietnamese government with advisers and eventually with troops, uh, the whole thing might <coughs> topple. Well, it was Eisenhower, in fact, who in March 59 said yeah. that the United States would defend the independence of South Vietnam. Yeah. And uh, they started off, as you said, with a few uh, military advisors. But by the end of that year, by the time mm -hmm. that uh, President Kennedy came into office, there were 900 advisors. Mm. And then, of course, it uh, escalated up, and by the time Johnson took over after the assassination <clears throat> of President Kennedy, there were 180,000 American troops. And by 1967, there were half a million American troops there. 56,000 died. Yes, extraordinary. Yep. Something, something like, and it's still, it's a, it's, it's, it sort of haunts America, doesn't it? And I think one of the one of the great myths about the Vietnam War was that the, the, the American army was fighting a load of sort of pajama-cad mm. peasants. Actually, they were fighting the North Vietnamese Army, which was one of the most formidable armies the world has ever seen. I mean, they were a fantastic brilliantly soldier. Brilliantly general. Mm. Brilliantly general, fantastically good soldiers. Using, okay. Using guerrilla tactics. Mm. Right. Uh, I want to move on to Nigeria. John, <laughs> I don't know if they started these wars when you arrived. <laughs> um, so we, we hold this one off in General Dickey's here. Mm. Uh, Nigeria, I always got the impression that you turned up and then I think it was the Daily Mail said to you, well, you better stay there for a bit longer. Yes, I became a war correspondent against my will, and uh, it was a fascinating little war. It began in 67, um, went on to 70, but it became famous because of the mercenaries. There was a, a Swedish... This was the first Rosen. time, wasn't it? The first time, Van Rosen brought in some light planes, and there were... Uh, People who have been in the Royal Canadian Air Force took part. They had a magnificent public relations organisation here in London issued bulletins three times a day. And it was just... Uh, a it was an important war, though. It was an important war because the Igbos felt that the Yorubos uh, in Lagos were dominating the situation and the houses in the north, <coughs> Islamic, uh, they stood aloof. But uh, the Igbos were trying to reassert themselves and in the end were very heavily punished because when Jack Gowan, the president uh, in Lagos, ended the war, he changed the currency, which meant that those Igbos who had been in important positions in Lagos and had fled to... In the southeast, it could only change twenty or thirty pounds worth of coins. Gowan was at Sandhurst, and I seem to remember he used to tell visiting British diplomats, "Of course, I was at Sandhurst, so you'll be on my side, won't you?" I think he was also a student at the Army Staff College, yeah. Gowan. I'm pretty sure he was. And eventually came, lived in England, yeah. went off to Warwick. Yeah, yeah. Warwick University, took a yeah. degree at Warwick University, a very strong Christian. When um, Harold Wilson went out to talk to him, the first thing that uh, Gowan did was to take him to Doden Barracks and have a prayer yes. together. Mm. Listen, I want to nip on, because uh, we're running out of time, but the next war that comes to my mind, in fact, is the, the June War, um, the 1967 June War, all over in about a week. Um, and then the Yom Kippur War, uh, which took a bit longer. I mean, the, the great thing about the June War was the the element A of surprise that the the Israelis got up, went and knocked out 
They knocked out the, the Egyptian mm -hmm. Air Force yeah. in one But why blow. did they do it? Well, they, why did it start? They perceived that the Egyptians were going to attack them. Were they, and, Jim? Uh, um, I think the... I'd be interested mm -hmm. to know what, what Martin has to say about this, because the, the people will tell you they weren't, but people will also say that they will. So I'd, I'd like to pass on that one. But the reason they did it was mm -hmm. they thought they were going to be attacked, and they thought, well, we'll, we'll attack first. Martin. And they may have been misled by the Russians, because they had Russian advisors and so on. What the Egyptians did? Yes, the, yeah. uh, the, uh, the, uh, the Russian intelligence may have been false. Mm. But the importance of this war, uh, John, again, was public opinion, wasn't it? Immense. It started, um, and everybody said, little guys, got up and did it. Mm. It, was yeah, immense. it was immense. I mean, the, the, the rallies in Trafalgar Square, uh, the... Uh, Gateskill speeches were very moving, but before we just get onto that, you missed out one war, and that's the Suez War. Yeah, sure. Yeah. 56. The Suez War, in a sense, was an inevitable consequence of Eden's resignation in 1938. OK, quickly, 1956, uh, we invaded, without the American mm. support, but support of Israel and France. That's it. it. It was a conspiracy. Why did we do it? Well, this was Eden being obsessed with the power of dictatorships, which he saw in uh, 1938. He resigned not because of Hitler, but because of Mussolini. Uh, but when he looked at the situation in Egypt with the Suez Canal so important, he thought NASA was the embodiment and he was of the Egyptian. Hitler. Gamal yeah, Abdul Nasser. Uh, he president. was the president uh, of Egypt. Yeah. Mm. And so he thought... He yeah. thought the only way to stop the situation deteriorating was to get rid of uh, It Nasser. broke him, didn't it? It broke him. It broke then, him in health as Martin. well. And then the Americans came in and Eisenhower told them to back off. Mm. Uh, and the Russians then weighed in and said, right, if you don't back off, Khrushchev said, we'll send a, a nuclear missile to London. OK. Mm. Um, John, anybody, um, should we be thinking about the Indo-Pakistan wars? I mean, they really started in 1947, didn't they? they did, Three wars, indeed. four wars? And, indeed, and, and, uh, and inheritance is with us today. Kashmir is still divided. Uh, and that was why the war started. Why the war started. And <laughs> India and Pakistan have both become nuclear powers. The tension there is a direct result of these uh, wars that we saw earlier. Yes, and unfortunately the Pakistani army is geared up to fight a war against India, and I don't mm -hmm. think there'll be a war against India. Uh, there's been also a war between China and India over the frontier, mm -hmm. and that's more dangerous, I think, for India because of encroaching Chinese influence. But uh, uh, the Pakistani army has to uh, address itself address itself to the problem of uh, insurgency, Taliban, and so on. Now, I want to jump... Um, because I really should go to the Iran-Iraq war now, but I want to jump, because of part of the time, because we're going to do it with the Iraq 1 and Iraq 2 later on. The Falklands. Um, Julian, I mean, having commanded three brigade there, tell me, why did it start? Because a lot of people listening to this uh, weren't even born. Well, the, the reason it started was, was that um, the, the hunter... Uh, Galtieri, who, who headed it up, which was a dictatorship in Argentina. in Argentina, thought that he could get away with it. I mean, in putting it crudely, he thought that we'd do nothing and that he'd get away with it and he would be able to seize these islands. This would appease his population who were getting restive uh, and it was, seemed a good thing to do at the time. And he totally misjudged uh, the reaction uh, and that's why the, uh, the war started. They could have won it, actually, had they played it right. Why couldn't they have won it? Well, they were only 250 miles away. Uh, had they prepared the defensive positions better, had they taken various steps that any other military organisation would have taken in the six weeks they had left to 
them unmolested to do it, they could have made our lives so bloody difficult why, that we would have had a, uh, probably a stalemate. Why were we so militarily and diplomatically and politically unprepared or ill-prepared for that war? I think we were we were in the that wonderful position of doing of playing what's known as mirror imaging, which is saying we wouldn't do it that way, so they won't. And so we disbelieved the intelligence, which was telling us that this what this what they were going to do. Nobody thought that Argentina would take on a European power, a yeah. member of NATO. Sure. Well, the Foreign Secretary at the time, uh, Lord Carrington, went off uh, to Israel, Israel, and I yeah. went with him. And uh, he thought it was important then to go there, regardless of the telegrams that were coming in mm. from Buenos Aires, threatening uh, dire consequences of the landing of the so-called scrap merchant men in South mm. Georgia, which was the preliminary to the invasion uh, of the, the Falklands. It was the chief of the defence staff, uh, Admiral... Admiral no, it L- was the, the chief of the naval staff, chief who the naval went staff. to his office and saw two lots of telegrams, one for FCO telegrams, one lot of MOD telegrams, who were both contradicting each other, and he was so concerned, he said, I'd better go and find the Secretary of State for Defence. He walked down to the House of Commons... Uh, and found the Secretary of State for Defence in the Prime Minister's room, and he walked, in, yeah, walked in to hear the, the, the Foreign Office and MOD civil servants saying, there's nothing we can do about it, Prime Minister. And he said, well, actually, there is something we can do about it, Prime Minister, which is we can send a task force down. Mm. And anybody who met Henry Leach would probably think it was inevitable that he would say that. Oh, yes. He yes. Was, he was one Even of if you had to send empty ships out yes. from Portsmouth that exactly. following weekend. Listen, a common factor in most of the, uh, the, the wars, including the Iraqs 1 and 2, um, is that the United States had a deep interest in what was happening, and in most cases we're in the thick of it. Now, why? Whatever happened to the, I suppose, the guiding principle of United States foreign policy laid down as long ago as 1820-something, 1823? by the then-President James Monroe, which said, no one must interfere with United States security. On the line from the University of Southern Utah, where he's Professor of International Politics, Michael Stathis. Um, Michael, Monroe was talking, or Monroe was talking about Europeans not interfering, but later presidents knew that the United States front line wasn't actually in continental United States. Well, that's essentially true. And, uh, of course, if we look for a reason as to uh, why the United States has been in so many wars, uh, well, uh, first of all, wars like marriages are uh, far too easy to get into and uh, uh, too difficult to get out of. Uh, But the answer for America, I think, is uh, in three parts. Uh, One, uh, from the beginning, America's uh, global involvement. and uh, two, uh, a historical sense of uh, overblown righteousness. And um, uh, three, uh, clearly an erosion of constitutional checks and balances uh, and separation of powers, which uh, have have allowed things to happen that, uh, oh, the framers would not have been particularly happy about. Yes, I mean, your constitutional and draftsman uh, tried to draw up rules which said, look, by the time we actually agree to go to war, it's probably over. Oh, exactly. Um, and uh, there's a great irony here in that uh, uh, the framers uh, uh, worked diligently uh, to attempt to create a constitutional process uh, that would have made uh, entering a war so damn difficult uh, that uh, the war might actually be over before uh, America could uh, get involved. And actually, that's what many of the framers were actually hoping for. 
Yeah. I wonder if, if by the time we get round to, let's say, the first Iraq um, war and then the second Iraq war, we're into such a technological age, an age of, of astonishing communication systems, that nothing that, well, certainly nothing that uh, James Monroe could have said or thought about, and not even the constitutional framers could have thought about, would prevent America getting into war. Well, you know, uh, the late uh, Francis Warmoth, uh, who was a great constitutional authority uh, in his life, uh, actually commented on this subject, uh, the excuse that uh, old constitutional uh, limitations uh, uh, have to give way to uh, modern uh, realities, especially given modern technology. And, of course, the classical excuse was uh, during the Cold War that an American president might have to react instantly uh, before consulting Congress uh, to, to deal with the situation. But, you know, uh, history has proven that that scenario never occurred. There has always been time Michael, just, uh, to, uh, to consider, uh, you know, all of the various uh, nasty angles of war. Just one final question. We've been talking now uh, about the past hundred years and how, how war started, how we got into them, how everybody got into them. Um, do we still really know, or do we yet really know, how we got into the um, 2003 Gulf War? Well, the specifics are still being argued, and of course uh, a major part of that argument is going to come out in the next few months with uh, Dick Cheney's uh, memoirs, such as they're going to be. But uh, uh, one of the basic answers, I think, is that uh, Arthur Schlesinger uh, Jr. was absolutely right. Uh, the imperial presidency uh, c continues. It was uh, something the framers would never have tolerated, uh, and uh, it would have been their worst nightmare. But when we look at this war in particular, uh, it was the president's decision. Uh, it was a president's war. Uh, he asked for it. He defended it. Uh, he uh, attempted to uh, sell it uh, misleadingly to uh, a country and to a world. And here we are. Right. Michael Stathis. Here we are. Oh, by Thank the you. way, Michael Stathis, the idea that you can get into war just as easily as marriage... <laughs> Don't tell Mrs. Stasis that. <laughs> okay, fine, I'll talk to you later. Um, listen, I mean, it, it, here we are then. We've gone through how war started. Uh, please, round the table. Um, how's the next one going to start and where? Taiwan. Martin. Uh, Taiwan, a conflict between America, China and Japan. A proper conflict? A proper conflict, yes. But uh, the Americans will go for the destruction of the Chinese Navy. Because if they do that... They don't have to do anything else because there's no way the um, PLA, the People's Liberation Army, can then move. Julian Thompson, do you buy that? I, I buy that. Um, my eye was fixed perhaps more in, in the Middle East, but I think that we'll see more of what we're seeing at the moment in the Middle East rather than all-out war. Right. I don't know. I think there is a danger that somebody in Israel may say the only solution is to strike first at Iran Otherwise, we will be uh, annihilated. And you don't there, think then the rest of the Middle East will sit there and say, thank goodness they did that? Well, the, problem, the problem is that one assumes that America will hold the reins on Israel, but I can envisage a scenario in which Israelis will deny the American a chance to put a barrier to them. Okay, yes. uh, Julian, uh, the, here, is the, here is the thought then. Uh, we could see more wars. We're very likely to see more wars because we've always done so. Wars that Britain will take part in again, or has Iraq and perhaps Iran taught us a most amazing lesson? 
I think there are wars that we will have to take part in. I think if, if there's a war uh, which threatens or looks like threatening our survival, which could be our trade, for example, our oil supplies, our energy, food, our energy, then we've got to get involved. OK, um, just a quick thought. Um, I said right at the beginning, who said that? And I'll just give you some of it. A very strong sense of calm came over me after the intense passions and excitements of the last few days. This man was really talking about the excitements of preparing to go to war. Who said it? Email us your answer to sitrep at bfbs.com. Julian Thompson will know because in his next edition of A Call to Arms, um, that quotation, I'm sure, will be in it. Now... If there's one unlikely, in ten seconds each, if there's one unlikely war, something the oddball never recognised, Martin, where's that going to be? It would be in Latin America with, uh, involving Venezuela. Right. Could be in Africa. Why Africa? So many tensions are building up there from poverty that it could break out. Uh, China invading India. When? When the Chinese decide that this looks good to them. Oh dear, that's it for this week. <laughs> well, the, the, my thanks to John Dickey, Julian Thompson and to Martin McCauley. Join us here on SITREP next Thursday at 4 o'clock UK time. Um, or you can listen again and podcast anytime you like at bfbs.com forward slash SITREP. But from me, Christopher Lee and Mary in the Hut, bye now. <laughs>